The following Bible study is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. For more studies and information, go to graceteaching.net. And now, here's our Bible study. Okay, we are continuing in our study on God's covenants, and uh, we're looking at uh, God's covenants, and uh, specifically our goal is to get to his covenant with us. That's a key part of it, but as we're understanding this, we're going to move into, uh, we want to review, but we're going to be moving into a covenant sometimes called the Mosaic Covenant, sometimes called the Sinaitic Covenant. Sinaitic, that's a fancy way of saying it was made on Sinai, sometimes called the Law Covenant, uh, whatever it is. But just in review of a covenant, and I should have asked, I should have put these up there and had you answer these questions first, but a covenant is a contract. It's a, based on promises, promises from, from God. Okay, they're promises from God. A covenant involves two or more parties. God, on the one hand, when we're looking at biblical covenants, God's a party to the one covenant. Yeah, one side of the covenant, and then somebody else, like we've been looking at Abraham and Abraham's family. Okay, You can't have other parties involved, but uh, most of ours are two-sided. It's God and God's people, whoever those are on the other side. A covenant can be unconditional, that one party is responsible. Those are some of the covenants we saw with Abraham, that God made unconditional covenants like that, that God says, I'm going to do this. And he doesn't say, you have to do anything. He simply says, here's the covenant. Here's the promises. This is it. And on the other side, we can have conditional covenants. We're going to look at a conditional covenant today. It's a covenant of law in which God makes promises to Israel, but those promises are based on whether or not Israel will obey. And so with that, we're going to, as we look at this, I want us to go and take our Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 2, just to, to be clear on this. And this is important for where we're going to, uh, where we want to get to, kind of one of the key texts today. Exodus chapter 2, and I've given you several verses on here, but we're only going to look at Exodus chapter 2. This has to do with Israel, who has been now in Egypt for over 400 years. And it says in verse 23, Exodus 2, verse 23, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. The children of Israel groaned because of the bondage or slavery, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of their bondage or their slavery. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he made the covenant to Abraham, but it was always to Abraham and his descendants. And uh, Isaac and Jacob were the ones. And now these are all, it says, and God looked upon the sons of Israel. Israel is the other name for, who in that list? Jacob. Okay. Keep in mind, Jacob... Can anybody tell me what the name Jacob meant? What does it mean, Clayton? Heel grabber. Heel grabber. Do you wrestle, Jacob? Do you wrestle? Or Clayton? <laughs> you haven't done. You haven't done wrestling yet. You got. You wrestle though, right? Okay. 
Do you ever grab at a person? I don't know wrestling real well. Do wrestlers ever grab at somebody's foot or ankle? Okay. Is that? Okay. Okay. And this is significance of that is, is this is kind of the, the background to Jacob, Jacob's birth, but the way God, the way they named him that way, but it kind of took on that. And he actually is known, Jacob is known for an event in his life in which he actually did what all night long? He wrestled God. He wrestled with God. God came down in human form and he wrestled with him all night long. When he's done, interestingly enough, God doesn't call him heel grabber anymore. He doesn't call him Jacob. He calls him Israel. Israel, which means God's strong one or God's prevailer. Because he prevailed with God. He, he, he managed to, to go all night long wrestling with God. I watched, I've watched some of these guys wrestle over in years past. And I'm telling you, after their match is done, they look exhausted. I can't imagine what that... There must have been a different kind of wrestling match to wrestle all night long. But nonetheless... Well, let's be honest. God was playing it. Well, yes. Obviously, yes. Yeah, it's not like God's relying, is, is relying on his omnipotence in wrestling. But the significance of this is, if we understand... We have these two names back-to-back, -back, Jacob and Israel. When we're going to go over here... He's not originally going to refer to them as Israel. He's going to actually look at them as Jacob. And when God refers to the nation of Israel as Jacob, what do you think he's kind of saying? It's not a compliment. It's not a compliment. You're not God's prevailer. You're not God's strong one. You are. You're the heel grabber. You're the super, usurper. You're, you're the disobedient guy. That's who you are. And we're going to see that here in just a, in just a moment. So with this, I want us to go over to Exodus chapter 19. And this is where we have kind of the introduction to what's going to happen with this covenant uh, in, in what he's going to do here. This covenant that's at Sinai, it's a covenant of the law. It's also called, as we said, it's the Mosaic covenant. And so when we get to Exodus 19 in verse 1, in the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, so three months, not very long. On the same day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. When you read wilderness like that, you're looking at an area that is not being cultivated primarily, and it's not largely being inhabited except by what we would call nomadic people that would move flocks around in their tents. That's the significance of the term when we're looking at wilderness, okay? So they're coming into an area where there's not a lot of inhabitants, okay? There might have been some... Um, like I said, some nomadic people, some shepherds and such in there. For they had departed from Rephidim, and they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and so Israel camped there before the mountain. And, you know, when I grew up in Sunday school, and occasionally you would see somebody that would paint a picture for a Sunday school paper of Israel, you'd see this camp, and in the middle of the camp you got like this one mountain sticking up. Is that what it looks like when you go down to, into the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula? Is there just like one lone mountain? What? Oh, I thought you said you, I thought you were the ones, I'm trying to think who it was that did go there that was here. Okay, maybe that's what it was. But it's a whole mountain range. You're looking at a mountain range. So when you're coming up there, there's like this range. It'd be like for us um, coming up to Saddle Mountain, except that from what I understand, the pictures I see of it, there's, you know, you're going over a little bit more hills and valleys getting up to the top. Okay, so that's what you're looking at. You're not looking just one peak that just sticks up out of everything in an obvious way. I'm sorry, the, just a side detail so that we understand kind of the background. 
Verse 3, and Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the, what does he say? The house of Jacob. Again, a good, a, a complimentary term, or, uh, or uh, well, I, 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 I never used to use this term, but now that I know Ben, Orth, sometimes I can use the word knucklehead. Knucklehead's not normally a complimentary term. It's kind of like saying, well, what are you, what, what's with you? What, why did you do that? <laughs> it's kind of crazy, you know? This is, even, this is a little stronger yet. So he says, the house of Jacob, the house of Jacob, meaning you guys have problems. And tell then the sons of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle wings and I brought you to myself. He doesn't say you guys came out here. I brought you to myself. So let's go back and let's back up on this. This is, to me, is always a really interesting examination. And if you haven't done this, I would recommend that with a pen, sometime, you don't have to do it right now, but you try to mark these and create a chain reference for yourself so that you can walk through these and tie them into this statement here in 19 where he says, you've seen what I have done. So let's go back to chapter 5. Chapter 5, look with me at verse 19. And this is after we, we've had the situation where God's called Moses. He's going to send him to Pharaoh, and uh, they're going to do this. And uh, this is uh, 5.2, and Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? Who's, who's this Jehovah that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So they've talked to him. So they go back, and if we go down here now in the context here and put in it verse, uh, verse uh, 17, but he said, You are idle. He's talking about these people, Israel making the bricks and all of this stuff for the building. Idle. Therefore you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore go now and work. No straw shall be given you, yet you shall deliver the same quote of bricks. If, for those of you who don't understand, they're making bricks out of the, the clay in that area, and they, they put uh, straw in there, stubble, to reinforce this. <coughs> And so the officers of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks in your daily quota. And then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put in their hand to kill us. Does that sound like they were happy? No, they're not happy. They're not happy about the situation. So fast forward through the plagues. Israel leaves. Go to chapter 14. They reach, um, they reach the Red Sea. And if you remember what happens, they get to the Red Sea and they can't cross the Red Sea. They didn't come with boats. The Red Sea is not a marshy area. This was actually, they're coming to a, the genuine sea that they cannot cross. It's too deep. And the army of Pharaoh is chasing them, and the army of Pharaoh comes up behind them, and they're, they're, they can see the army coming, and so let's look at how they respond in verse 10, and when Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, so they were very afraid. The sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, and then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us like this to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve, serve as a slave, the Egyptians. Uh, it is better for us to serve the Egyptians that we should die, than die in the wilderness. Sound like they like what's happening? 
Okay, no, they don't. This is negative. Let's go on here to chapter in chapter 15, and uh, let's go down to. Um, uh, let's just try to make sure I'm getting the right one. Let's go down to chapter 15, verse 22. Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. That's why I'm. Chapter 15, verse 22. So they've come through the Red Sea. They sing this great song. If you haven't read that for a while, you ought to read this song that they sing. They sing this great triumphant song. In fact, we sometimes in Sunday school, we've sung that song. The horse and the rider thrown into the sea. You know, remember that song? Well, that's this part of this song. But they, they come through... And it says in verse 22, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness. Three days. Three days have passed since they just watched God do this absolutely incredible deliverance. Do any of you ever remember, did any of you ever watch that animated um, movie, um, Prince of Egypt, I don't know, 20-some years ago that it came out? I didn't. I didn't know what to expect. We went there with our kids and Peg's family, and we went to watch this. But you know, I always thought one of the coolest things. And it, obviously, it's fiction because we don't have no idea what happened when they went through the Red Sea. Other than that, I thought it was pretty clear. The water was walled up on both sides, and it's piled up. And just to give you a perspective, I liked the one choice that they made. While well, while the people are walking, you see this whale come by on the side, and you can kind of see its silhouette. You know, they were just trying to say this is a big deal. You're in deep water and you're walking through on dry land. I was like, whether that actually happened or not, we have no idea. But they go through. They've experienced this. You would think if you had gone through something as incredible as watching God blow that, that ground dry, pile the water up on both sides, go through, and then watch him drop that water on the Egyptian army when they chase you through, you would think you'd go, wow, God is really on our side. We're... we're what God, whatever you want to do, you do it, man, because, boy, that was incredible. But look at this. They go three days. Three days, it tells us. They went into the wilderness, sure, three days into the wilderness, and they found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Bitter doesn't mean it tastes bad. You ever gone someplace and you drink the water, like, you, you know, go to Seattle and drink that water, you're like, oh, yuck, I, I'll drink it because I have to, but it tastes nasty. That's not what bitter... Bitter mint is no good for you. It's like poison water. It's water you're going to drink it and you're going to get a bellyache. You're going to get sick and you might even get sick enough you might die. Okay, just to put this in perspective. Therefore, the name of it was called Mara. And the people complained against Moses saying, what shall we drink? So three days out there, they don't go, hey, what could God do? This God did that thing where he split the water here. Maybe he can provide water now. No. What did you do? There's no water for us. We can still hear one of my professors in seminary going over this. He used to use, do you remember what word he used to use, Josh? Belly acres. I'd never heard that word belly acres before until I listened to him say that. But this is what they're doing and they're complaining. Look down in chapter 16. And, they, and so God provides water, by the way. And, and I was, you know, when as a kid, you know, when they come up there and, and he gives Moses what he's supposed to do and he makes the water sweet so that they can drink. Remember, we've got probably about 1.7 million people here. So we're not talking about a little pond of water. We're talking about that there has to be a significant body of water that 1.7 people, million people, as well as their livestock, have access to that water. That's a lot of water. Just to try to put this all in perspective. Verse 16 
or chapter 16, verse 1, and they journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. And then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly. You know, wine, wine, wine. We've run out of food, and all would have been better to die in Egypt. Always makes me think of the Keith Green song. Uh, so you want to go back to Egypt? I don't know if any of you ever go home and look that up. It's a kind of an interesting song uh, that we heard way back when I was in college. But uh, they're complaining. We want to go back to Egypt. We sat by the pots of meat. And they're whining and complaining. And so what does he do? Well, he's going to say, you are going to, you're going to wait every morning. You're going to go out and God's going to send manna and it's going to come down. And, uh, but don't keep any, you only take what you can eat for the day. When it's done, you don't keep it. Verse 19 of the same chapter. Now, Moses let not says, let not one leave any of it till the morning, notwithstanding they didn't listen to Moses. And some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. That's obviously supernatural. Nothing breeds worms that fast and gets rotten that fast. But this did because this was a supernatural thing of punishment. Because they could keep it for the Sabbath day. God supernaturally allowed this stuff to stay good one day a week. That's supernatural. That's not a natural phenomenon. Okay, I hope we understand. And Moses is angry with him. And so they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted away and there was nothing left. Turn to chapter 17. Look with us down in verse 1. And the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of Sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses, give us water that we may drink. So they're complaining again, contending. And uh, again, God's going to provide. Verse, uh, ver it goes on. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt or put the Lord to the test? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, why is it that you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so God's going to provide water. So you just put this in perspective. The reason we went through those is because when he tells us in chapter 19 and verse 3, say to the house of Jacob, he's saying to you people that are stinkers, to you people that are schemers, to you people that are always trying to make it work, and when it doesn't, what did they do? They whined and complained. They grumbled. They never said, oh, hey, God, how can you take care of this? Because you're a great God. We saw what you did to the Egyptians. We saw what all those plagues that you took us through and did that to the Egyptians and brought us out here. Boy, what kind of a God are you? doesn't do that. So with that in mind, verse 3, chapter 19 of Exodus, Moses went up to the God. The Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle wings. In other words, I carried you. You could not fly. I carried you on eagle's wings. I did this. I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and you will keep or guard my covenant. Now, we started. The thing we started with 
today was looking at the covenant that was made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What covenant do they have? Do they know about when he says, will you guard my covenant? The covenants that he made with Abraham that we've spent the last couple studies looking at. These are the only covenants they have. And so he says, will you do this? Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice, and that word obey, I don't think it's a bad translation, but if you take basic Hebrew, you're going to learn the word Shema is here. In fact, in the Hebrew Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, that verse starts with the word Shema, which is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It doesn't say obey, O Israel, it says hear. And that's what the word is here. He says, if you will hear my voice, if you listen to me, if you just hear me, what I'm saying, and you'll guard my covenant in this context then, then you will be a special treasure to me above all peoples for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests, and you shall be a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the, to the sons of Israel. Now, I don't know what, about you, but if I would have been among Israel, because I'm really, I'm pretty cocksure that I would have, you know, I would have done the right thing. I would have said, oh God, I, obviously I can't do that. No, I think I would have been idiots like these people. I'm sorry if I offend you by saying that. I would have been foolish like these people. And uh, so let's see how they respond. I already kind of let the cat out of the bag, and most of you know this. So Moses came, verse 7, called for the elders of the people, laid before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. And then all the people answered, and they said together, We can't do anything! We've been losers and whiners and complainers the whole way! No, it says all that the Lord has said we will do! What in the world? They, yeah, yeah, yeah. They wouldn't be able to do anything. So yesterday, I'm out there splitting that wood, and I've got that axe. And man, you know, you, you watch it. I don't know if any of you ever watch any Avengers movies, but you know, Steve Rogers, Captain America, he's out there splitting wood, and, it, and the pieces slide apart. In my mind, I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be so cool. I've never done this with thunk. <laughs> Dunk. <laughs> so then you get the big mall from Dwight, and then you're like, then you think, well, I'm going to swing it like this, and I do that, and I miss, and it comes down here, and I'm going, that, I would have broke my leg if I would have hit that with the force that thing came down. So then I'm up there kind of going, dunk, dunk, dunk. <laughs> Seriously. If you ask me, hey, Tim, split wood, I would go, well, I can try to help you, but I'm not. But you know what? When you're kind of sometimes foolish, and you kind of, no, you've got limitations, but you don't want to recognize them like Israel did. You're going to go, oh, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. Somebody knew what they were doing. They would have taken care of that in short order. I was working on that for two hours. If you look out there, what's out there, you're going, that took you two hours to do that? Yeah, well, <laughs> overestimated my abilities by far. Well, what do you think Israel's doing? They're overestimating their abilities by far. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud 
that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe in you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, to the people, set them apart today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of the people, and you shall set boundaries or like a fence, something that they clearly these people could see where, how far they could go. The people all around saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Notice what he says. Not a hand shall touch him. You're going to put him to death, but you're going to stone him or you're going to shoot him through. They've said with an arrow, it could have been a spear, but shot him through. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall then they, they come up to the mountain, but they can't come up and touch the mountain. They have to stay back at a distance. Now, to me, one of the things that's most amazing about this is that God has actually been this God that has been fairly approachable to them. But all of a sudden, the minute they say everything that the Lord has said that we can do, now God says, guess what? We're going to start off from day one with a boundary, and if you come up and you cross that boundary, you are going to die. Does that sound like some place you'd like to be? This area up here. You guys get to come to church. I'm the only special person that can come up here. You come up here. You come within two feet of this, this area. You die. Would you, would you want to, do you think you'd want to come to church if it was that way? <laughs> if there were like some place in there that, oh man, if I get close. And I can guarantee you when church is over, you'd make sure you knew where your little kids were. Those little kids that as soon as church is over, run off and they come up and run up around here, you know. We don't have little kids like that anymore, but you know what I'm talking about? You've been real careful. It changes the whole atmosphere. And what we have then as a result of this, when they respond that they can do, I want us to look at a couple statements that he actually is going to say. And he's not going to say them right here at this moment in time, but he's going to say this to the next generation. Turn over to Deuteronomy. This is when he repeats the law to the next generation, because their mom and dads did not obey. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5. And again, if you keep notes in your Bible, I would attach this verse to that statement over there in chapter 19, verse 8, that all we can, all you said we will do. Notice, notice what it says in verse 28. Deuteronomy, um, let's see, I've got to find my, yeah, chapter 5, verse 28, and the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this pe people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have said, but oh, that they had a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. <laughs> in other words, oh, that they were like that, but what's he saying? They're not. I mean, if you say, oh, that they really cared, what are you implying? They don't care. Oh, that they had a heart to obey. You're implying they don't have a heart to obey. Turn over to chapter 32 here in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32. <clears throat> Deut oh, yes. Deuteronomy chapter 32. And I have the wrong verse here. Nope, that's not it. I apologize. We're going to skip to the next one. Joshua 24. Joshua 24. 
Joshua chapter 24. Now, when we come to Joshua chapter 24, and we're going to go towards the end of the chapter, we are, um, we are reaching the point here in Joshua where Joshua is about to die. He's getting old. They have, they have, he's brought the children of the sons of Israel in the land. They've conquered the land. And in all of this, and he makes this statement that most of us are familiar with, and people put them on plaques on their walls and things like this. But go to verse 14, Joshua 24, 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems good or if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, well, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which are on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So he's saying, you make a choice. Are you going to serve those gods? Or are you going to serve our? He said, we're going to do this. So the people answered, oh, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of slavery, who did these great signs before us, and has preserved us alive in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. And Joshua said, you cannot serve. <laughs> they just get done it. You think Joshua goes, good, great answer, guys. But look at this guy. See, remember when Moses died, he, he, he led them as Moses' right-hand man. So he got to see what Moses had to deal with leading them. Then since Moses' death, he's been leading them. So he knows them pretty well, right? So what does he say? You cannot serve the Lord, for he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and do, do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve God. <laughs> Verse 27, and Joshua said, you are a witness against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, yes, we're witnesses. In other words, Joshua said, I know you guys better. I've watched what you did when Moses was leading you. I've watched the problems we've had while I've been leading you. I know better than this. <coughs> you guys are presumptuous. And so if you put these statements together, and there's another one that I had on here, and I thought it was Deuteronomy 32.29, but that's not it. It's a verse where, what? Deuteronomy 32.19. Okay. So let's go back to 32, look at verse 19. See if that was 32.19? Hmm. Oh, okay, there it is, verse 20 then. Yeah, he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. They have provoked me to jealousy by that which is not a God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are, who are not a nation, and I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. So, yes, okay. Uh, and I my, my thing that I summarize is, he knows that they're rebellious. So in other words, we have at least three statements by their leaders, by Moses, by Joshua, as well as by God, that the people of Israel were rebellious. 
So when they stand in Exodus 19 and said, all that the Lord has said we will do, we look at that, and if that's all the further we went and we had not read their history up to that point, we might applaud them and say, good for you, great people. And I have to share this um, because I had a friend that participated in a, at a conference before we ever lived here. And I remember he said they were at that conference, and the speaker that was up at the con speaking at the, this conference, and it was a conference, it was a church, big church conference, hundreds of people in this big convention center, and the leader of this group, and, it, and, it was, and it was, we're not talking about some crazy offshoot group, we're talking about some good Bible teaching Christians generally. But the man's up there, and, he's, and he goes away from his text, and he starts teaching on getting things done, this organization, this group getting some things done. And kind of foolishly with his mouth, because I know what that's like, I, I never, ever say anything that I don't actually mean to say, do I? <laughs> yeah, sometimes you guys have to go, wait, wait, but that's not what you meant. <laughs> but this man up in front of these people, he says, we really need we really need to get God, we need to be following God's lead in this. We need to make sure God's, that, that we're doing what God wants. And if God doesn't take us out there to do this, then we need to get out there and do it ourselves. And who's with me? And, he, and this friend that happened to me at the conference was like, what? If God's not doing, we need to get out there and do it ourselves? And he says, almost everybody in that auditorium all cheered like, he goes, because he said, who's with me? And everybody's like, ah. And he was like, what am I hearing? If God's not with us, we go ahead and do it anyway? By the way, Paul tells us over in Romans 15, and Paul tells us over in 1 Corinthians 10, that we're supposed to learn things from Israel, and one of those is some of the things not to do. And maybe one of the things not to do is to be so presumptuous that we're going to say, God, I don't know that you're doing this, but I'm going to go ahead and do this anyway, because it sounds like a good thing to me. We ought to make sure when we do something that it's actually what God has promised us in his word and what he really wants us to be doing. So with this then, he ends up giving them the law. And we're not going to go through the law. We're not going to go through all this stipulation. We know if we go back over to Exodus chapter, turn to Exodus chapter 20. What do we have in Exodus 20, if, you haven't, if you're not there? Ten commandments, which are kind of a, a synopsis of this. And uh, I'm, I couldn't fall asleep right away last night. And in, in my, my brain said, even though the clock said it was only 4.30, my brain says it's 5.30, it's time to start waking up, which is kind of when I've been tending to wake up lately. And so I'm trying to not wake Peg up. So I get my iPad down and I finish reading this. I read this last, was reading this last night and I read through about five or six chapters here in this section of Exodus where he gives the law. If you haven't done this for a while, you ought to read it because I was telling Peg, it's like, don't do this and don't do that and don't do this. And if you do this, you better do it like this. And it's all these stipulations that you and I could be really thankful that we're not, this is not the way God directs our lives. But he gives us, he gives the law, the Ten Commandments, and I'm not here primarily to teach on this, but I want you to turn over to chapter 24 now. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24, and go to verse 4, and it says, And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning. He built an altar. 24-4? No, no. Oh, Exodus 24. I'm sorry. Exodus 24-4. See, I never say anything that I don't mean to say. 
Exodus 24.4. There we go. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the, what we call here, the Book of the Covenant. That's the, the writing, the suffer, the relationship of the covenant, uh, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. Again. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and he said, this is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you, according to all these words. Now, this covenant, this covenant that we know as the covenant of law, he tells us right here, it was this book of the covenant. That's the covenant that he's making here. This is what we call the covenant of law, the Mosaic covenant, Sinaitic covenant, because it's made here. But it's a covenant of law. It's all these words. It's the Ten Commandments. But it's all this other stuff because he said a lot of things between the Ten Commandments and the time he gets here where he stipulated this and this and this and this and this and this. And all of that comes down to making up the law, this covenant. The Ten Commandments is kind of, shall we say, it's almost like a table of contents on the remainder of the law that he is imposing uh, on these people and that they were supposed to know all of this. Now, the last thing, I, I'm, there was one last thing here that I really wanted to try to put in here, and I'm trying to find my, my statement. I should have underlined this one. Um, there it is, Deuteronomy 31. Turn to Deuteronomy 31. I gave you more information than I intended to cover here, just to kind of fill in some details, but Deuteronomy chapter 31. <clears throat> Deut Deuteronomy chapter 31, and let's go to verse 24, and it says, So it was, when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites. Now, he'd written them earlier, but now this is a rewriting of some other materials. Moses commanded the Levites. They didn't have Levites back there in chapter 24 because they hadn't actually fully set up the priesthood yet. And he bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Okay, I don't have a problem if you want to use the word Ark. Does anybody here actually know what the word Ark meant? Box. Oh, good. Oh, I'm glad. It's a box. That's all it means. The fact that when God told Noah to build an ark, we always say boat, but it was functionally, but it was a box. So he said the ark of the covenant. So there was a box that related to the covenant here in, of the Lord. Take the book of the law and put it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God, or put it in the side uh, of your God that it may be there as a witness What's the preposition that he uses there? A witness against you. You remember when the priest came in one time a year, one day a year, the high priest entered through a veil, pulled that veil aside, went in there, and they had that room filled with smoke. He's the only person that got to go in that room, and he got to go in there one time a year. And he took a bowl that had blood in it, and then he had a branch. So think of a branchy thing that would kind of have dangling little spindly sticks out at the end. And he took that bowl and he dipped it in there 
And in the smoke, you've got the wings of the, the cherub that are on top of the lid of this box. And he would go through where those wings are and he would splatter and that blood would fall down on top of this beautiful gold, they call it mercy seat. All it, uh, That word mercy seat is literally kafir, place of covering. Mercy seat doesn't tell you anything. It was a place of covering. That's literally what that was. Because what was happening on top of that, that lid? The blood was falling and it was covering over what was inside the box underneath it. The Ten Commandments, the law, which, what did he, how did he describe it back here in verse 26? It is a testimony against you. It was, it was essentially all those laws that over the course of a year, those people knew they had violated and broke. And for God, for them to earn the right to have God in the midst of their camp, in the midst of their land, so that they had knew that they had a place where they could go and have access to God. You and I, I don't want to deviate on this too much, but you and I don't appreciate this a whole lot. If you wake up and you have something you need to pray about, what do you do? No, you get in your car and you drive to the church. And you talk to me and tell me, Tim, that no, you don't do that. You pray about it. That's right. But these people lived at a time where they didn't know, always know where to find God. They lived at a time where it's like, remember, even Jacob, their father. Jacob was like, I didn't know God was here. He goes over here. I didn't know God was here. Why? Because they always thought they had a God that was in a specific location. They didn't know where to go. God now designates this tent. What's the word we usually call it? Because it comes from Old English. Tabernacle. Tabernacle. That, do away with that word. So all the word meant was tent. The only reason we say tabernacles because that's the way that's the word for tent that they used when they were translated early English. It's tent. That's what it is. It's a Hebrew word tent. In fact, when it's used of the sons of Israel, what they lived in, never calls them tabernacles. It calls them tents. But when it's gods, they we've held on to that old word. So he had this tent, and eventually the temple. And in the back of that was that room that was fifteen by fifteen by fifteen, and that ark, that box was in there. And inside that box were these tablets of testimony that were a testimony against Israel because they said everything that the Lord has said we can do. We will do. And say we can't. Say we will do, which is a presumption that they can, right? And they broke those. And he would come in and they would sprinkle that blood, that covering over that ark. Because who lived, who dwelt among the sons of Israel above that ark, above that lid? God. God the Son came down and manifested himself above there. Just think, you and I don't have to worry about that. We don't have to go and find a place. Because every moment of every day we can say, I sit at the Father's right hand. I'm in the Beloved, like that song we sang today. And in the Beloved accepted or graced am I. And we have that privilege of turning and talking to God there. Now, because this also, I'm trying to relate some of this to us. I think it's good for us to do this. And so I just want to remind, I, we've done this so many times, but it's always good to remember. Let's go to Romans chapter 3. I want to look, when we read about the law in the Old Testament, if all we had was the Old Testament, we wouldn't know fully why God gave Israel the law. And so most people, they read that and they think, hey, well, the law would have been a righteousness for them. It does. The Old Testament tells it. It would have been a righteousness, not before God. But it would have been a righteousness. It was a means that provided them 
the ability to do the right thing so that they would have access to God. But when we come to the New Testament, we are going to find some statements over here that the Apostle Paul is going to tell us this is why God gave the law. This is actually why he gave it. You don't learn this under the law. You learn this in the New Testament. So, Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that what the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Who was under the law? Israel. Israel. The sons of Israel, those sons of Jacob there. There, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. In other words, the law spoke to Israel not just to shut the mouth of Israel, because what did the mouth of Israel say? We can do it. All that the Lord has said we will do. It shuts their mouth and they realize. But it doesn't just shut their mouth. It shuts, shuts the world, the mouth of all the world is guilty. It shuts our mouths. If you're smart and you read the Old Testament and you read what Israel do, did do what Israel did, you don't stand around and go, ha, I would have been better. Those crazy Israelites, I would have done the right things. I wouldn't have grumbled over water. I wouldn't have whined at the edge of the Red Sea. I would have stood there and go, oh, we're going to stand and watch God do something amazing. No. I, I, oh, yeah. If you, read, you, you looked at these in your Sunday school class? Let's go back and look at them. I wasn't going to do this. But I, this is Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is not one. There is none who understands, and there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In fact, that was one of the things they were supposed to do. In fact, when God came down on the mountain, he scared them so much that they said, Moses, you go up to the mountain and talk with God. If he talks with us, we're going to die. And it actually says that when, if you, re if you keep reading there in Exodus, in, in chapter 20 through 24, where we were today, and we just kind of blitzed through some of this, it says that when God came down on the mountain, they looked up there, the mountain just looked like it was just a massive ball of fire, a big cloud of fire and lightning and thunder. Is that someplace where you think you'd like to hang out? Usually if you get lightning, what do we all do? We head inside, unless it's like way, way off on the horizon. They were there with the, watching the smoke and they were terrified. But in reality, they didn't really fear God. Next thing he says, Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law is knowledge of sin. Israel thought that they were pretty good. The Israel demonstrated to them that everybody's guilty. It secondly demonstrated, hmm, what? That there's sin, that we're all sinners. We actually recognize what we're doing. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We have this statement that we read a lot, but I don't think we always appreciate fully what this means. It says, For the sin shall not be a master or lord over you, for you're not under law, but you are under grace. Why do you need to be under grace but not under law? 
See, people that want to put Christians under law today, what they fail to realize is if you keep, keep your finger here, because we'll be right back, but turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And look what God intended the law to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it says in verse 56, 1 Corinthians 15, 56, it says, the sting, the sting of death is sin. And literally, the sting of death is the sin nature. The one thing about you being subject to death, as long as you're walking around in this mortal body, is you're going to carry with you that old sin nature. And it's going to drive you nuts because you're going to find yourself sometimes acting out of your sin nature. Well, I didn't want to act like that. Why did I do that? Because you got a sin nature. And you didn't take God's means of having victory. And the power of the sin nature is... What does he say? The law. You got that sin nature in there and the law comes around and it prods and pokes it by saying, don't do this. And your, your sin nature is like, oh yeah? And the law says, don't do this. And your sin nature goes, oh yeah? And the law says, don't do this. And your sin nature goes, oh yeah? Power of the laws, or the power of the sin nature is the law. It was designed to demonstrate not only the reality of sin, but that we have a sin nature. And if we go back over to Romans chapter 7, let's turn to chapter 7, put in it verse 7. And it says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Oh, never let it, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have known sin, and I would say here when he's talking about this, I would not have known the sin nature except through law. For I had not known coveting or craving if the law did not say thou shalt not covet. But sin, the sin nature, taking occasion through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of coveting. For apart from the law, he says, sin is dead. Now it's only dead from my point of view. I know it's alive under law when I know that there's things that are wrong. Why? How do you know that you have a sin nature? How do you know that you have a sin nature? How do you know that the works of the flesh are wrong? Because you probably had your mom and daddy say, you know, I shouldn't do that. Having a temper tantrum? No, not acceptable. Kicking your sister? Not acceptable. Don't do that. Or your brother. Looked over at Stan. He didn't have any sisters. He had brothers. So, But I had a sister. <laughs> we used to get into it. And my mom and dad taught me those things. And then you'd sit in church and you'd listen to them go over rules and things out of the Bible, and you go, oh, that's not acceptable. And that's how I come to realize, well, there's a part of me that's a real stinker. Because even though I have had my mom and dad tell me not to do those things, and I found the consequence of doing those things, it's that I have to go to the kitchen with my dad, and i got to get three swats. So I don't want to do that again. And next time comes around, it's like, why did I do that again? I know better, because I've got this sin nature. See? And the law, see, is demonstrating the reality of this sin nature. Next passage that we want to look at, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3 and verse 19. Paul asks, why then is the law? For what's the purpose of the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions. In other words, it was added, and that word there, when it says it was added because of transgressions, I'm just going to make sure I'm getting this right, uh, 
That word that's translated because of transgressions is a form of our word grace. It's a form of the word charis. It's the word karin, which means it's there for the benefit of transgressions. For the benefit of transgressions? Don't you mean to stop them? No. It was there to make the transgressions increase. Why? So that people would figure out that we're sinners and have a sin nature. That's, that's why God gave the law. That's why God gave the law. Last passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you come to realize, and you read the law carefully, and we didn't look at a lot, but remember, it's one of the first things God told Israel when they said everything the Lord has said we will do. What was one of those first things? He said, you're going to tell the people, I'm going to come back in three days, and there's going to be a, a boundary, a border around the mountain. And what happens if a person comes up and crosses that border, touches the mountain? They die, which is going to be, well, this is Paul's going to grab onto this. And if you read the law, you see a lot of this, that the law is going to be a ministry of death. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. For if the ministry of death in letters cut in stone came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, then how shall the ministry of the Spirit, that's ministry with us, fail to be even more glorious? For verse 9, for if the ministry of condemnation, it condemned. So he says two things here about the law. It's a ministry of death and it's a ministry of condemnation. Now our main study is here on the, supposed to be on the covenants. We're looking at this covenant of the law this, that God gave them. We're going to come back because there's a few other things we want to tie in on this covenant of law in our next, in our next study. But it's important, I think, for us as believers to appreciate. And I, I know I am preaching to the choir when I talk to us here. Because I, there's, I don't look out and there's not a one of you that I look at here that has not sat here, at, at least to my knowledge, in our church while I've been teaching and many of you in other places where you've learned we're not under the law. We're not under the Ten Commandments. In fact, I think most of you would agree with the statement, I don't even think the Ten Commandments are a good idea as a place to start. It's a good place to start if you want to prove people are sinners, but it's not a good place to start. I've had Christians say that. Well, I know we're not under the law, but isn't maybe it a... Aren't they maybe good, good principles? They're not good principles. Because they teach you to try to do the same thing Israel. When a person tries to live by law, they're doing the same thing Israel did at Sinai. The Lord said we can do this. That's what's happening. And you know one of the most important things for us as Christians to learn? It's the doctrine of the truth, which essentially tells even you as a Christian, I can't do one thing apart from God. And God is not using the law to do anything in my life today, primarily. Sometimes he'll use the law to remind me, you got a sin nature, bud. Because <laughs> sometimes I'm stupid. You want to read that in 1 Timothy 1, he tells you. It still serves a function like that. It still can get your attention. But that's never going to produce any righteous living. That's going that's to come as a result of you learning to depend on God by living by grace. Covenant of law. I'm glad we're not under that covenant of law. I trust you're glad you're not under the covenant of law. We didn't really do justice to most of it today, but we'll come back and we'll look at some details on that in our next study. And I, I trust that you'll be with us for that. Father, we're thankful for the time you've given us together. We're thankful for uh, what you have shared with us about the law, giving it to Israel, and that 
you use that nation to serve as an example for all of us that hopefully we would be smart enough to think, mm, I don't need to go that route. I saw their failure. But you know, a lot of times we end up going that same path. Help us to be those that would recognize our failure, recognize our inability, and to recognize that only you can accomplish in us what actually needs to be done. Thankful for this time together, for the attention of these kind people, and ask that you might encourage us in the remainder of this day. Amen. I was just going to say, if you are interested on this, I if you if you go to the WordPress site, and I don't probably most of you don't read the the blog I put up every week, but if you go on there and you look under the law, I have Josh's list that he did. Oh, I don't know, three or four years back on what the law could, was and couldn't do and such. And there's that list that Josh has on there. And uh, you can take a look at those things. Josh may have that list on, in his Bible somewhere too or something if you want to just get a copy of that on the photocopier. But it, to me, it's a good, helpful list. So, okay.